This is the Ransom Heart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, and we are in the middle of a series we're calling Love and War. It's based on the book that John and Stacy wrote together, and it's about finding your way to something beautiful in your marriage. Now, today is part five of the series. If you're enjoying it, I'd really encourage you to check out the whole book or the entire book on audio. The six-part podcast series actually only touches on about half of the book. So there's so much more than what we're getting to here, but I hope this is giving you a good taste of what Love and War is about. Today, John and Stacey will be reading from a chapter of their book titled, When Storms Descend. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus. Mary became a Christian in college. At a campus Bible study, she met Bill, a new believer as well. It did not take them long to fall madly in love. Devoted to each other and to following Christ, they were married as soon as they graduated. Upon returning home from their short but sweet honeymoon, the trouble began. Mary soon discovered that Bill had an addiction to pornography, which was vast and strong. As a boy of 10, he had stumbled upon, or been set up by the enemy to find, his father's stash of hardcore pornography under his father's bed. Bill was caught and bound at that early age and had been held captive ever since. So often, the root of an addiction lies in a person's generational lines, the sins of the fathers or mothers being passed down. Every addiction wreaks havoc on the human heart and the hearts of those who love them. For Bill and Mary, his struggle caused division, sorrow, and untold grief. Unable to quit, Bill would try to deceive his wife by hiding his stash or lying about his life. It never really worked. For Mary's part, she felt betrayed, dishonored, hurt, and angry. Bill's addiction only seemed to worsen. Over the years, Bill went to two different treatment centers. He participated in 12-step programs, as did she. Hope would rise in their hearts for a little while, but only for a little while. The stronghold was fierce. Bill even came to Mary and offered her a divorce. She declined. But she was far from happy. She felt alone and in utter anguish in her marriage. Hundreds of times, thousands of times, her husband was continuing to choose a glossy, make-believe woman over her. These were going to prove to be very trying years for both of them. It does not always come as an addiction or an outright betrayal. It does not always manifest as a crippling illness or a prodigal child. But however it comes, when heartbreak intrudes into a marriage, it can feel like our world is coming apart at the seams. The haven, meant to be the sanctuary for two hearts, can sometimes feel like the least safe place of all. Navigating Storms John and I were lying in bed, holding each other before settling into sleep. Outside, the winter wind was howling. Our home is nestled at the base of the Rocky Mountains, and gusts roaring up to 80 miles per hour were screaming around the house. The windows rattled in fear. I swear, even our bed was shaking. The storm was whipping down the mountains, the wind hurling itself against everything in its path. Sometimes our lives can feel like that, like the forces of nature and the circumstances of our worlds are hell-bent on knocking us to bits. Just when we think we cannot take one more thing to go wrong, something does go wrong, 
and we tremble with the knowledge that the big bad wolf just might be able to blow our house down. Notice, we did not title this chapter, If Storms Descend. Of course life is hard, sometimes unbearably so. As I listened to the wind assaulting our home, I was grateful that at this juncture in our marriage, John and I are unified, working with each other and not against. We are a team, united with each other and with Christ. And when that is true, we are strong. And in my heart of hearts, I know that no matter what happens, and only God knows what will happen, we will make it through. But that has not always been the case for us. We have seen some hard years. So has every couple we are close to. Navigating stormy seasons is a challenge every couple will face. The limits of a book like this can be frustrating. We especially feel that here in this chapter. There is simply no way to address all the variables that play into why a marriage has hit rough waters, why romance has died, why a certain couple is headed for divorce, and how to find a safe harbor. But let us offer some steps to help you walk through hard times. The Reasons for Rough Waters Two nights ago, Stacy was in an accident. She was making a left-hand turn, hit a patch of ice, and slammed into a parked truck. The impact blew out the passenger window and pretty much destroyed the door of our car. Thank God no one was hurt. She called to ask me what to do. I am ashamed to admit how quickly I started jumping to conclusions. I wanted to blame her for going too fast. I wanted to chastise her for not using four-wheel drive. Good grief. My poor wife is standing out in the cold, shaken, asking me for help, and I'm leaping to accusation like a prosecuting attorney. My only comfort, and it's a sick sort of comfort, I'll admit, is that I'm not alone in this. When crisis hits and something shakes us, we all start grasping, clutching, and looking for someone to blame or some place to hold on to. Like people do when they're drowning, panic overcomes us, we rush to blame or to speculation or to a box of donuts. Before you make another move, you need to ask yourself, why is it hard right now? Don't jump to conclusions. Don't start making unexamined agreements. We're going down. He doesn't love me. It's my fault. We should never have gotten married. Slow down for a second. Your interpretation of what is going on will shape everything that follows, your emotions, your perspective, and your decisions. If you're mistaken, you will wander way off course and pay a great price. Take a deep breath, put down the gun, and ask yourself, why is it hard? What is this about? I remember the first time we went whitewater rafting as a family. It's a pretty exhilarating thing to do, careening down a raging river in a small, inflatable raft, dodging rocks, plowing into standing waves, intentionally throwing yourselves into conditions the Boy Scout manual tells you to avoid. Water was crashing over us constantly, and I'm thinking any moment now, our little lifeboat is going to swamp. Inflatable raft implies deflatable, right? Do we need to start bailing? I asked the guide, who seemed unaware or unconcerned about the volume of water pouring in. 
This is a self-bailing raft. It'll flow right out, he said as we hit another wave. Okay, this is normal. No need to panic. It's flowing right out. It's flowing right out. The hard and even scary times might be normal. Wouldn't that be a relief to know we're going to be okay? The hard and scary times might be signs of something more serious. Wouldn't you want to know that as well? We need to deal with this. Catch yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Walk with God. Why are things hard? Scripture gives us any number of reasons for rough waters. Each of them requires a different response. Transformation Whatever else might be going on, you know God is using your marriage to forge your character. You also know by now that the log in your eye makes it hard to see anything clearly. So even if the primary cause for the crisis lies beyond you, it is best to start here. For too many years of our marriage, I lived in a posture of fear. I thought that if John had a problem he wanted to talk about, it meant something terrible about me or about us. If we ignored it, maybe it would just go away, or better yet, magically fix itself. If I turned a blind eye to a tense situation or skirted around a painful subject, everything would be okay. You know, the queen of denial and all that. Just like I tried to fool myself to believe that food eaten in secret didn't count, I was an ostrich with my head in the sand hoping that problems in my marriage would go away if I just did not look at them too closely. In his love, God used trouble to get me to look at my fearful way of handling life and the reasons beneath it in order to set me free. Whatever else their reason, whatever their cause, God will use the hard times to expose our sin our spouse's sin as well. It is best to begin by asking him, Lord, what is being exposed here? What are you after? Notice your reaction, your emotions, your inner thought life. Notice what you tend to do. Though other issues might be at play, or almost always at play, this is a good starting point. Accept your own transformation. Warfare. You live in a world at war. Spiritual attack must be a category you think in, or you will misunderstand more than half of what happens in your marriage. Think of it as gas on the fire. There may be a real issue between the two of you unresolved anger, a hidden addiction, misunderstanding. That is the fire but it gets blown out of proportion or it becomes irresolvable because the enemy has leapt on the issue, prodding, provoking, and distorting. That is the gasoline. You'll find it surprisingly helpful to bind the enemy when things get hard or crises strike. The enemy may not be the cause of it, but you can sure bet he wants to take advantage of the situation. Kick you when you're down. Pray against the ways the enemy might be involved. Bind him from your marriage. Get all of that off of you so that you can see clearly. Ignore the presence of warfare, and you will find it very hard to see your way through. Brokenness. A friend of ours has an eating disorder. She's had it since she was 16. Her husband, a devout Christian, has tried in vain to help her. You've just got to be more disciplined, sweetheart. He made her write down everything she ate in a day. She continued to lose weight. 
He made her eat in front of him. She couldn't. He got angry. You just need to obey God. You would not ask someone with a broken arm to swim the English Channel. So you can't demand the broken to live as if they were whole. Discipline is not the issue. Apply discipline and you'll make it worse. What is needed is healing. Sometimes the craziness in our marriage comes from deep brokenness in us or in our spouse. But we're so embarrassed by it, we try to hide it as long as we can. So God uses troubles to flush us out of hiding. What we need to ask him is, where is the brokenness, Lord? What is this all about? And just as importantly, where is healing to be found? Seasons. Marriage has its ebbs and flows. That is just the way it is. As sober old Ecclesiastes says, there is simply a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. There will be times when you are close and times when you could not feel farther apart for no other reasons than that is just the way these things go. We don't really like winter much, so why in heaven's name do we live in Colorado? But winter comes, like it or not. People have their ebbs and flows too. If one of you is walking through a dark valley personally, of course it affects the marriage. But it is not about the marriage. This is really quite relieving. However, if you can't allow for ebbs and flows, if your marriage must always be happy, then you will turn what is simply a low season into something worse. You can whip a rain shower into a typhoon. If you can't allow room for your spouse to have ebbs and flows, they will take their personal struggle and turn it on you, and then you really will have a mess. It's like picking a scab. Keep your hands off and it will go away. Check in with God. Is this simply an ebb, Lord, or are these signs of something else? The world. The law of entropy in a marriage works thusly. All things decline to a lowest common denominator. We fall to what's easiest. Stacy and I like to go out to eat, but I've noticed over the past couple years that we always choose restaurants close to our home over restaurants that are funner or tastier or might prove to be a new adventure. We could go across town or we could go down the street. When we're tired, we always end up down the street. And after a while, we are sick of the same old burrito. So we stay home. The law of entropy happens in conversation too. We fall into a kind of shorthand that requires the least amount of energy. How was your day? Fine. Yours? Tiring? Your mother called. Oh, where are the boys? At the game. How many arguments happen for no other reason than that you are both tired? How many times is, quote, sexual disinterest not an issue of lost attraction, but simply exhaustion? The question is, why are we so tired? Has the world crept in and stolen the life from us? Jesus, is there something about the way we live that needs to change? Perseverance. There is a passage in the book of Hebrews we don't like very much. Although he was a son, it is speaking about Jesus Christ, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 8. 
dang, if Jesus needed to learn through suffering, well, it just doesn't leave any room for complaining, does it? How are we going to skip this class if he had to take it? Suffering will be a part of our education as God's children. Now, this is not to say that every bad thing that comes your way is God's discipline. It does not mean that marital crisis is some sort of retribution for past sins. That is bad theology, and it has hurt a lot of people. A friend was suffering from a terrible flu. She said, I sure hope I learn what God has for me in this so I can get over it. I didn't want to be unkind, so I kept my mouth shut, but inside I thought, You think God made you sick? There are other things at work in this world. Germs, for instance. We live in a broken world. Disease, accident, and injury are just part of life east of Eden. This world has foul spirits in it, too. They cause a lot of havoc. The sin of man is enough to sink any ship. Stir all these together, and you've got plenty of reason for suffering. So don't go thinking that every bad thing that happens is God punishing you. As Dallas Willard reminds us, what we learn about God from Jesus should prove to us that suffering and bad things happening to us are not the Father's preferred way of dealing with us, sometimes necessary perhaps, but never what he would on the whole prefer not his preferred means. Keep that in mind. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. Lamentations 3, 32 and 33. Now, having said that, we do have to accept the reality that suffering is a mighty powerful teacher There is nothing that will get our attention like pain. The good news is, it has a surprising effect upon us. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans 5, 3-5. Hope is a fruit of proven character. Proven character is forged through persevering during times of suffering. Some hard times are simply for our good. Neurosis, said Carl Jung, is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. There is legitimate suffering. There are certain things you never discover about God until you go through hard times. There are things you never discover about yourself, too. And so it is good to ask God, Father, is this from your hand? Is this simply something you are asking me to endure? Stand by me. These are hard times for marriage. Family is distant for most folks these days. Community seems like a thing of the past, and church feels less and less relevant, whether it is true or not. We're all so busy, we have practically no time for genuine relationships, especially together as a couple, and so we get isolated. And that is dangerous. No marriage can make it on its own. 
we need the loving support of others. For most of the past 25 years, we've been a part of a small group, a home fellowship of some kind or other. What a relief to have friends who care, who pray, and who help us work through hard times. John Dunn could just have easily have substituted the word marriage for man. No marriage is an island. Don't make any big decisions alone. Decisions to leave, to separate, or to end the marriage. Get counsel from friends who know your marriage, your pastor or priest, a Christian counselor, people who walk with God. You need the eyes of others on your marriage. You need other couples. In fact, it would be a beautiful thing to invite a few couples to join you to do the Love and War DVD series for small groups together. It would deepen existing friendships and open the door to new ones as well. It would also provide a context for you and your spouse to explore these issues in a loving and supportive environment. Love is insistent. One of the hardest days of my life turned out to be one of the most redemptive for our marriage. It took place during my graduate work in counseling. The program required that we undergo therapy ourselves. This is a very good thing to insist upon. Programs that do not require this border on malpractice. Not only did we need to see one of the staff counselors weekly, we also sat in on group counseling, both to witness what group therapy might look like and to experience it ourselves. The way the group worked was that we would each take a turn telling our story. Then the professor in charge would ask the listeners, well, what did you hear? Meaning, basically, pull back the mask. Where is this person a mess? After I finished telling my story and a few students asked some follow-up questions, the professor asked the question. Almost to a person, the feedback I heard was, we don't trust you. You don't trust me? I was hurt and angry. They pressed deeper. You were hiding. I wouldn't trust you to be my counselor for a moment. I was stunned. What are they talking about? I had become so completely accustomed to my way of life, I had no real idea of its effect on others. What the group began to dismantle that day was my perfectionism, my guardedness, and my resolve never to need anyone. They didn't trust me because I didn't trust them, or anyone for that matter. It was a very painful experience. I was the emperor without clothes. I was buck naked, all right. But it set me on a journey toward change, and there has been no greater recipient of the blessings of that change than Stacy. I'm sad to say I never heard her attempts to address my impact on her. So God brought me through that program as a sort of end run to get to me. You have got to own what is yours to own in the troubles of your marriage. You have got to insist that your spouse face theirs as well. I was really angry last year. It was loving for John to suggest I get some counseling. Now, he didn't need to insist I wanted help. But if I hadn't wanted to go, it would have been right for him to insist that I do. The same holds true for John. For example, if he had not responded to God's prompting to let go the little sip of wine each night, then I would have had to move to the next level. You need to deal with this. 
For years, I think we both thought that to overlook your spouse's issues was the most loving thing to do. I mean, geez, we're all a royal mess. We've got more than just one log in our eye. Most of the time, it feels like a log cabin, like a tub of Lincoln Logs. Who am I to point out John's shortcomings? But then I read the verse again. We take the log out of our own eye so that we can help our spouse with the speck in theirs. By all means, we overlook their little quirks. We even overlook the ways they wound us, if by overlook we mean we forgive them. But this doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to issues that will eventually harm them, or the marriage, or the children. God doesn't. It is not love to ignore your spouse's sin, or brokenness, or immaturity. It is not love to let something wrong carry on. It is not right. Truth be told, it is a lack of love that lets it all go on for years. When you let your own fears keep you from bringing something up with your spouse, that is self-protection or indifference. God loves until what he loves is pure. As George MacDonald said, love loves unto purity. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind, must be destroyed, and our God is a consuming fire. A friend of ours found herself in a dilemma. Her husband's temper was getting out of hand. Angry and wounding words were becoming more and more common. He would use foul language and call her ugly, horrible names. She asked him to see a counselor. He refused. So she moved out. She did not divorce him. She raised the stakes. It was a very difficult move. She had to support herself financially. She was suddenly alone every night. Members of her church did not understand or approve. But it is not a loving thing to let your spouse carry on in damaging behavior. In anger, he demanded she move home. I will come home, she said, when you go to counseling. We wish the story had a happy ending. He refused. He continued threats. She offered to go with him to counseling. He rejected that as well. Instead, he got his pastor to agree with him that it was his right as her husband to demand she return home. To be fair, I don't think the pastor knew the whole story. All he got was the husband's side. Eventually, this angry, unrepentant man filed for divorce. You cannot force people to walk with God. You cannot force them to repent. All you can do is live with integrity and invite them to do so as well. Take things a step at a time. Give them consequences when they refuse to deal with serious matters. And pray. Pray like the Dickens. Pray every step of the way. Is now the time for me to bring this up, Lord? Give me the right words. How do I help them feel the consequences of their actions? What is the best timing? Ask a friend to be praying with you. Now, there are matters you are going to want to insist upon right away. Insist that the shouting stop. It is not normal for a husband and wife to yell at each other. Make no excuses whatsoever for physical harm of any kind, not to you or to the children. But he says he's sorry every time. He may well be, but harm is being done and change is not taking place. Take the children and move to a safe place until he deals with his rage. 
Is there hope? We feel a certain humility in coming to this chapter. We feel as though we ought to take off our shoes. Though we have seen hard times, and many, they pale in comparison to the trials that some of our dearest friends have had to walk through. And so we turn to them to ask, what did you learn? David and Meg have been married for eight years. John performed their wedding. Last spring, Meg's mental and emotional health began to deteriorate rapidly. I was in a state of escalated anxiety and depression, she said. We found our daily life fractured under its violent weight. It is a dark veil to walk through with many unsolved mysteries. What is needed? Counseling? Medication? Healing? Deliverance? They tried it all. Meg continued to decline. They found themselves exhausted, bewildered, heartbroken. They went back east to lean on their parents and to seek treatment. When they returned to Colorado three months later, it was, quote, on the thin hope that we might be able to rebuild our life together. We realized that in many ways, trying to figure it out is missing the point. The point is that loss is real. Loss is heartbreaking. And the question we must wrestle with is, when life comes crashing down, from where do we draw the strength to go on? How much restoration is available for a marriage? End quote. It is a question many couples have asked, are asking even now. Last month, David and Meg attended the wedding of a good friend. They heard the words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, and cherish all the days of our lives. Later, Meg said, We realized that at many moments this year, it was literally our vows that kept us from jumping ship. Though our circumstances were unique, our experience of sickness and worse were a part of what we had signed up for, recognized for centuries in these very vows. Slowly, I have come away from the cold breath of death and despair to hope anew that the reign of love and redemption is greater than the power of our folly and brokenness, that somehow, it seems, in the midst of broken pieces and shattered dreams, there is an active, loving, and generous author who is relentless with an invitation to hope that perhaps a life, a family, even memory can be truly restored. Their choices to love and fight for one another and for the restoration of their marriage have left us speechless. Slowly, but ever so surely, Meg has gotten better. Redemption. Remember Mary, who we told you about at the beginning of this chapter? Although her marriage to Bill was hard and often a source of pain, Mary was committed to her God and to the promise she had made her man. She fought hard for her husband and her marriage. Mary prayed. She prayed hard and long, hitting her knees in the privacy of her bedroom, beseeching the Lord through her tears. She sought the Lord and he answered her. After 16 years of marital struggle and untold grief, God delivered her husband. The day came when Bill had the strength, the will, the desire, and the grace to say, no more. I choose God, and I choose you. That was two years ago. Mary is an amazing prayer warrior. 
Her heart is soft and her prayers powerful, often expressing themselves through her tears. She is a woman of deep compassion and mercy who knows God. She carries in her spirit such a sense of His Spirit that you just want to linger in her presence and drink from the well of what has been forged in her heart. The life she has with God has been hard won. The life she has now with her husband is a resurrected marriage, one filled with hope, forgiveness, and laughter. Not every marriage takes 16 years to turn around, and honestly, not every marriage can be saved. But I tell you Mary's story because as I sat with her, I knew I was in the presence of a truly godly woman. The holiness of her life, her utter surrender to her God, her first love, and her finally on the road to a deep healing marriage were the fruits of a thousand different choices to lay her life down and love. And in every way, it was worth it. Whether her husband ever repented and was delivered or not, it was worth it. Start here. Jesus tells us about two houses and how they each held up when the storms hit. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. The storms will come. That is a given. You need some place to stand. You need bedrock under your feet. When the winds blast and the waters rise, even if it's only internally, we have found immense help in returning to some very basic truths. I am loved, deeply and truly loved. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If all of the pain of the world were gathered together and sorted by cause into great basins, the vast majority of tears would fill an ocean entitled unloved. Because love is the deepest longing of the human heart, however hard we might try to pretend otherwise. When things get painful in our marriage, the arrows that pierce our hearts carry some message of, you are not loved. The arrows might be rejection or anger, or betrayal, or blaming, or even silence. But the message is the same. You are no longer loved. You never really have been. Oh, we have got to anchor our heart in the one sure love. You are now. You have always been, and you will forever be loved. It might help to say that to yourself every day, maybe every hour, this is the boat that carries your heart right across that ocean of pain to the safe haven of God. I am secure, utterly and completely secure. No one will snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. John 10, verses 28 and 29. When we married, we all gave a part of ourselves over to our spouse. We became one in very deep and almost mystical ways. 
This is why widows and widowers often feel as though I've lost a part of me. So when things get hard in a marriage, when there is pain and distance and we are clearly no longer one, it can feel as though our very soul is on the line. You are in a safe place. You are in Christ. I am forgiven, totally forgiven. Colossians 2 verse 13 says, He forgave us all our sins. It is probably safe to assume, since you are listening to this book, that you were the one who cares about your marriage. If you did it, you would never have made it to chapter 10. Okay then, it is also safe to assume that you are prone to taking all the blame on yourself. You are probably the one who's going to be aware of all of the ways you come up short in your marriage. What usually follows is that you start beating yourself up. Yes, you have to own your part in the mess, but you bring that to the foot of the cross and you accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, your failures hang around your neck like great weights. All is forgiven. You are forgiven. God is with me. He will never, ever abandon me. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You've got to silence the power of fear right now. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty, panic, they won't lead to one good thing, not one. Quite often, the fear is the unknown future. Will we make it? What is going to happen to me? What is going to happen to the kids? You are secure. God will not abandon you. Emotionally, financially, and physically, you are going to be okay. Calm down. When things get hard in a marriage, it can feel like the foundations of your life are giving way. It is good to remember that our foundation is firm, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. There are some things that remain true at all times and for all of God's children, no matter what. It's good to let your mind and your heart rest in these truths. Remember, I am loved. I am secure. I am forgiven. God is with me. Type these up and keep them handy for when the storms come. Paste them in your journal. Tape them to the bathroom mirror. For the storms will come, beloved. The wind will howl and the waters will rise. And Jesus, who calmed the storm, who is indeed able to calm all storms, is now and ever will be your help in times of trouble. That was John and Stacey Eldridge reading from their book, Love and War. Here's a question for you to discuss with your spouse in the next week. How have you been interpreting the hard times? Can you relate to what they talk about in the book on jumping to conclusions? And do you tend to blame or maybe go to fear or speculation, perhaps resignation, when the storms come? Talk about that with each other. See where God leads, what he invites you into, and we will see you back here next week for the conclusion of the Love and War podcast series. I'm Alan Arnold, and you've been listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast.